Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I was just talking to my friend Drew Lowenstein, who has been a panelist in the past and hopefully will be in the future, um, about, about, the, uh, about the review panel and its long history. He said, oh, you've got all those years of the National Academy and here. And I said, yes, but when you mentioned to, um, when you mentioned to millennials that you're 15 years old, um, they, they start yawning but so, um, and, and getting worried. So, in fact, it's, it's, it's marvellous to have a, a, a new lease of life that comes with a change of venue, although we're in serious danger now of becoming just as much of an institution in Brooklyn as we were in uh, that other borough. Um, uh, now that I think we're about to conclude our fifth year here, um, time does fly. Anyway, um, thank you to the Brooklyn Public Library, and it's my great pleasure to introduce this evening's panel for the season finale, a Whitney Biennial Special. And I'm going to do the introductions um, uh, via dialogue rather than um, simply um, ex-cathedra, um, mostly because I haven't kept up with Christian's most uh, peripatetic career. Uh, I can certainly tell you the distinguished past as um, art critic for The Village Voice and um, um, presenter with Blake Gopnik of those uh, vivid videos on uh, Artnet. Um, but Christian, what's, uh, what's the main activity that keeps you busy these days? Uh, I'm a curator down at a museum in Tampa called the um, uh, University of South Florida Contemporary Art Museum. And um, yeah, just... Uh, Writing, writing here and there. I have a book that came out. That, that's what I should. That's what I should plug. That's what I should properly plug. You should wrap social, on your knuckles. From social your forms: A short history of political art that was published by David Zwerner Books uh, around the end of last year. Congratulations! Yeah. Thank you. Very good. And Karen E. Jones, who's a professor at CUNY, and who's uh, I'm proud to say a contributor at artcritical.com, among other publications. Uh, just this morning, we were uh, able to post her uh, review of the Whitney's, by coincidence, um, Warhol exhibition. Um, a mixed review, I should say. Not of Warhol, but of the installation. Um, uh, and I'm sure we'll be getting further tastes of her uh, critical acumen this evening. Um, what's keeping you busy at the moment, Karen? Well, I've been writing reviews for Art Critical, and also I have a publication that's out for Center for Book Arts on the exhibition that I worked on uh, several years ago called Archive Bound. So it's a historical um, sort of overview of um, the exhibition in sort of an archival uh, format. Fantastic. Karen Jones. <laughs> I should or quite probably should not point out that this is uh, Christian's seventh review panel and Karen's fourth? Third, I third, think. Third. Actually, sixth. I lose... I think it's seventh, actually. Seventh and third. Um, but Sophie has the distinction of her debut this evening on, on this uh, uh, strange series. Uh, Sophie is an artist, a critic, and a translator. From what languages do you translate? French at the moment. French at the moment. Working on the Yiddish and the Hungarian, but French for the moment. And what is your last translation? 
My last translation was of some of Chris Martin. Oh, fantastic. Is your mic working? I can barely hear, and I'm, I'm, I'm just here. So um, perhaps it is working. It just needs to be ramped up. Otherwise, it'll be lost in translation. Um, and Sophie, as I say, is, a, is an artist. She's artist in uh, residence at Trestle uh, Project in uh, Brooklyn. And uh, she's a, a graduate of Columbia of not so many years standing. Uh, this century, definitely. And she is um, uh, a regular contributor to the Brooklyn Rail and Art Forum, which is where I've encountered and enjoyed her writings. And it's wonderful to have um, her perspective this evening. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. Great. Now, um, you might wonder, why are we sitting in this divide? Are they the, uh, are they, are they the Whigs and we're the Tories, or is it vice versa? I'm not sure. Um, no, it's for the technical reason. Um, whenever we have our green room chat, I admonish the panelists that they're not supposed to turn around all the time and look at the screen. Uh, they're supposed to have done their homework already. They should be looking out at the, at the audience and projecting, and the, whatever images are shown uh, behind us are uh, solely for the uh, uh, edification of the audience. Uh, but tonight is uh, unlike other nights in that uh, we, um, uh, such a huge number of artists in the um, show, and um, uh, we, uh, I should introduce the fifth wheel on this evening's review panel, uh, who is actually sitting in the box uh, at the back, in the booth, the booth. Uh, Noah Dillon, former associate editor of Art Critical, um, artist and critic, who is our visual DJ, uh, who will be... Um, uh, exploiting the checklist provided by the Whitney and maybe some other visual sources to, um, to as we talk, uh, project images um, so, that, so that we all have some reminder of who and what we're talking about. Um, I should say that the uh, Whitney's, uh, this is probably the first and not the last critique of uh, Whitney's uh, organizational skills this evening in, in that, uh, grateful though we might be for, to them for the biennial and um, uh, the wonderful energy of that great institution, is that um, or the images uh, are, are the kind of images that are gathered as the curators are researching those artists and don't necessarily actually reflect what, uh, what's in the show at the moment. Uh, which is a little frustrating for those of us. Well, it must be frustrating for everybody, actually. But it's particularly frustrating for um, critics and review panelists. But um, so that's why uh, bear with him as Noah also negotiates the, the checklist, which has um, more uh, up-to-the-moment uh, and pertinent visuals. But what we're going to do first, um, say something nice, say something in French. Uh, Sophie. Salut. Oh, wow. Salut. Salut tout le monde. Right. Your mic is now working beautifully. That's what I wanted to ascertain. And so we're going to see um, the nice, slick, curatorial uh, half-minute video as a good kind of voice of the institution and an opportunity to quickly rampage through the fifth and sixth floor of the Whitney um, so, um, Booth, let's, let's go ahead with our video, please. 
Whitney Biennial is a snapshot of contemporary art making in the United States. We visited over 300 artist studios and we saw artists using material from the past and repurposing that to reimagine the present or really think about alternatives for the future. There's a lot of artists who are grappling with some of the most urgent and complicated issues of our time, of our country, of our place in the world, and they can really induce us both to think and to feel. And we want people to experience that. So, first impressions, and it seems like only yesterday that I was uh, on this podium with uh, Jessica Bell Brown and Frog Vartanian and uh, Walter Robinson reviewing the 2017 uh, uh, Whitney Biennial, and and certainly uh, that that is kept vivid in the mind because of the controversy surrounding um, Dana Schutz and and Open Casket. Uh, which we won't have a one-hour discussion about this evening, don't worry. But um, uh, focusing, as we are, on the current exhibition, um, first, perhaps rather banal point, is, is, is uh, maybe an exhibition such as the Whitney has to have a built-in uh, scandal. Otherwise, um, uh, th- that becomes the, the principal mnemonic, doesn't it, of a, an exhibition of a sprawling and... Um, attempting to be zeitgeist-defining as a Whitney Biennial, to have some point of uh, um, profound controversy. And it it almost feels as if uh, the uh, forensic architecture video about about the uh, tear gas um, produced by a subsidiary owned by uh, the vice chair of the board of trustees of the Whitney um, was its attempt at a, oh, let's get our own, let's get a nice... Let's, let's make sure the institution has its own open casket um, so that we can uh, um, maybe get some, some uh, controversy. Maybe that's a cynical view. It's a way into a question of, um, does, this, does this biennial... Um, h- how does this biennial feel it's, it's moving on from the last one? What, what's, what are our first impressions here of... Um, of this year's iteration, um, with two years ago still vivid in many people's memories. Um, Karen, can I start you on that one? Okay, well, the the, um, controversy, I think uh, it's cynical for you to think that these kind of um, controversies that come up organically each year could be sort of programmed by the museum. I don't think that was the intention at all. I also think that the uh, 2017 biennial was kind of overshadowed by the new space, and that um, that really took sort of a center stage of what was going to happen in the really spectacular and I think quite successful architecture. Uh, And this year, I was really struck by the fact that this was a sprawling, overarching, and a type of um, exhibition that really lacked a focus. Uh, The curators said that they went out to 300 different um, studios over a course of two years. Um, There was no thematic approach. Uh, There was some thematic... um, 
uh, threads that went through, such as um, the kind of uh, inform, the kind of um, reintroduction of painting, the kind of interest in um, outsider art techniques. Uh, however, there was really a lack of focus, I felt, in the exhibition. And I'm wondering if also the question of, isn't biennial something that is really feasible going forward in the sense that there is no one location for an art world any longer. The curators went to places like Berlin to seek out American artists. The idea of what is American art and how can you make an exhibition that really charts a snapshot of the past two years of production. So, so much has changed with the way that art is exhibited and made. And I think that because the biennial is such a hallmark of the institution, it's really trying to keep up with that almost branding or trademark and doesn't want to let go of it. But it seems as though in this iteration that it was a really Sisyphean task for these two young curators to really cover so much ground. And I think it showed in this kind of very broad, very sort of diluted, watered-down um, presentation of um, artworks. Right. Sophie, um, uh, did, did you have a strong sense of the the last one or any previous biennials? And did, or, or were you able to just go in with this in a kind of fresh fresh eye? Uh, how, how, did, how did you feel this lived up to expectations that one might have of a biennial? I did see last year's, or last biennial's biennial. And... I think what struck me about this one was its focus on a sort of silenced patriotism or upset patriotism, upset nationalism, being confronted with a number of flags on the ground floor, being confronted with that Jeffrey Gibbons flag right above the check-in table. Yes. Yes. And the, the Gibson piece... And also Kota Azawa's national anthem, I felt, were really key structuring principles of being confronted with a national anthem that is only orchestral. So what does it mean to, to be confronted with a work that... And that's, a verb, that's, a, that's an audio piece. Right? It's, a, it's a film. It's right. a film. Is it the one where they're kneeling, the animation? Exactly. Ah, so it's where the footballers are taking the knee, and it's, uh, it's an animation. Exactly. It, I, it, it I know I'm going focused. Floor, yes. Yeah. I'm getting focused pretty quickly, but I feel like the idea of, of a sort of open structure where you're confronted with sound that, that permeates the whole floor... And that sound is of an anthem that has a history of slavery that the mm. NAACP requested in 2017 to no longer be the anthem sort of immediately gets to the core of what I think this biennial seeks to do. Right. So there, there is a pervasive vibe of, of problematized patriotism, nationalism, um, Allegiance, mm. uh, um, Christian. Does that does that gel with you as a 
as a compelling. Sure, I mean, I'm struck op- by two things, you know, two large sort of overarching things. One is the fact that um, it, it, as opposed to 2017, the art is not the point of controversy. It's the institution that's a point of controversy. And that's a, it's sort of a, a bizarre pickle for the museum to actually sort of put itself into mm. um, and then try to get itself out of via this commission, which is slightly odd. Um, uh, they commission essentially a UK group. This is the biennial of American art at the Museum of American Art, right? Um, uh, so they commissioned uh, forensic architecture, again, a U- UK collective, to address a problem that I suppose none of the artists that they've actually drafted to be on the biennial either had the courage or the interest to address. I mean, I find that strange, to say the least. Um, so on the, on the one hand, the museum is itself sort of the, the, um, the locus of controversy, right? Um, it's not a piece of artwork necessarily. Um, the other, I think, overly sort of, the, the other great characteristic of the show, and I think you certainly, Karen, t- you touched on it um, uh, uh, quite well, is that it's, you know, in the main kind of milk toast, frankly, as a curatorial sort of brief. It is a what, it, sorry? Milk toast. Uh-huh. It's neither yes. here nor there, as they say in Chilean Spanish, ni chicha ni limonada. It's neither lemonade nor... Uh, apple cider. It's just a mix of something or other. You can't <laughs> quite sort of put your finger at it, and that's a problem, obviously. And the third thing that I'm struck by, um, and we can get into that later or not, um, but the third thing I'm struck by is how even in a show as unfocused um, and as really, I think, committed to it in direction, both curatorially and artistically, yes, that some really good work wins out. I mean, mm-hmm. my list is not long. There's 75 artists. Um, and maybe maybe I can squeeze out seven. But look at seven. 10% is not bad. Seven is not, not too bad. I mean, I think. Com- compared, to a, um, compared to an afternoon strolling around Chelsea. The, 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 I guess the last... Well, exactly. I think you're absolutely right. I think in a good month, that, that's a very good... That's a very good number for, uh, I'd, I'd go further, Chelsea and the Lower East Side. Yes. Um, uh, but, but uh, um, yeah, and the last thing I would say is that this is a show, a lot of has been made uh, of the demographics of this show. Yeah. And they are, as it were, not even woke demographics, they are correct demographics. Um, I, I have it written down somewhere, but maybe you have in mind, there's 75 artists, I think over... Was it over forty percent? No, over fifty percent are women. Fifty percent are right? women, right? I think over forty percent are under the age of thirty. I think I've got 30. that right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's a uh, what they call a major, major, minority majority show, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of which is exemplary. You know, uh, you one cannot have a problem with that. You put you you meet those standards for ethical reasons because it's the right thing to do, because it's an issue of equal opportunity. But one shouldn't imagine that meeting the, defra- dem- meeting the dep- demographic numbers, right, will necessarily result in a good show. And I think that's something that the curators have to come to terms to, have to come to terms with. And that's something I, I've certainly come to terms with. I think the audience probably would be fairly comfortable in coming to terms with that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just a fact. In this well, show. Kristen, I have to say that that's the job of the curator to be diverse, to be representative. Yes. But uh, you know, foremost is to find excellent work that's thought provoking. And I'm with you. That's something that's you know um, taking the pulse on what's going on uh, in the country. And I feel like it's really uh, I was aghast at the mildness of um, mm-hmm. the uh, political tenor of the artworks that we're in this historically, politically challenging moment. And I feel as though the artists are not in touch with the reality of you know, the dangers that we're facing politically. And if we go back to the 1993 biennial, that was you know, groundbreaking in the sense Absolutely. that it was politically motivated and it had so much- The identity co- biennial, the political- Yes, that had so much backlash critically, but did break ground institutionally and overall in the art world. And produced and, a whole bunch of artists we're now- I, I, very familiar with. I think Karen's absolutely right. I'm reminded of, of, a, of a line from Tennessee Williams that he used to describe Horton Foote not nicely. A pineapple ice cream soda. That's kind of what this biennial seems like, at least in comparison to that 1993 biennial, which was frankly balls out, if you don't mind this, you know, the, the language. It, it really was. Okay, For but like compared to, compare to but the political climate that we're in, it doesn't it really it, resonate. It met it frontally, and this one does not. Right. Yeah, that, it's it's it's... It's ironic, and I, I must say, I went to the press preview and thought, okay, um, there's a problem here. I'm liking it too much. I mean, it seemed just a, a very pleasant <laughs> exhibition, an innocuous exhibition, okay. and I was pleased that the one in ten artists seemed okay. It seemed like somebody I'd be interested in looking at more, and okay. there were some videos that I watched beginning to end. Uh, the, the cushions were very conducive to... Uh, to watching it more than beginning to end, perhaps even on the loop. Um, that one about that's that's based on um, uh, Bruce Chatwin with the um, Ellie uh, Gar. Is that name? Ellie Gar. Ellie Gar. Yes, thank you. Uh, Ellie Gar's video was very mesmerizing, cushions notwithstanding, and 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 also, well, I could mention other things that I really enjoyed, but um, I said. I'm enjoying some of the things here. That's not what a Whitney Biennial is supposed to do. And so here's an exhibition that has been ferociously political in, and the truth of the matter is, since 1776, there's been something to complain about. But um, now in uh, in 2019, when, as you say, uh, complaint is is a beginning, uh, it is is ironic that um, it should be such a, a mild and innocuous display. And, and it's also, um, once you very publicly and visibly and insistently um, set about making a uh, demographically inclusive exhibition, and then it's also a slightly uh, bland exhibition, um, the ethics rebound, the ethical, that, that, that creates an, an ethical problem for uh, the curators that's a it's, it reminds me a little bit of um, when um, when you when you put disabled friendly uh, stairways on uh, historically fine buildings and you you spoil the look of the facade of that building. Um, that's an added insult to the disabled. That um, you know, in, in order to include the disabled, you're bringing the, you're making them conscious of. Uh, a, a disruption to the to the aesthetics of that building. Well, in a f- funny way, you can do the 
uh, you can fill in the gaps in my clumsy analogy yourself. But no, no, you but it's, see, a, it's yeah. an analogy that works if, if you, it's an analogy that works if you're absolutely sure, as of course I think all of us are, you can find really good artists that meet those demographics. They're just not in yeah. the show. That's the problem. You know. Well, I also thought it was nice to see some of um, artists that are in the mainstream, like Wenginchi Mutu, doing new work and going from her collage and painting techniques into freeform sculpture, kinetic sculpture, using like a genre that was a complete failure to success, or James Luna and Nicole um, Eisenman. I saw some really amazing work from artists that have been around, and then also there were some new names that I feel have come to the surface, and that's what a good biennial can do. Uh, however, you know, the aspect of the Gibson piece that you brought up, the flag that you see when you enter um, at the front desk, I found it, you know, extraordinarily decorative. I f found as though the message about identity and the message about, you know, the other was sort of masked and it was sort of, you know, decorative and it was hidden. And I'm wondering that if this sort of lack of a political... Um, point of view um, or interest by artists could be an effect, a chilling effect, sort of a fear of a sort of self-censorship or that the artists feel like that they have to hide their political message under aestheticization of colorful presentations of sort of, you know, subtle and subliminal suggestions. I'm not sure, but I just noticed that there was really a lack of, you know, as you said, the sort of full frontal approach to political and social context. Yeah, Sophie, I want to bring you in here. Um, uh, uh, Karen has made a specific point about Jeffrey Gibson, but it's kind of interesting to me that the, um, uh, in, in, in the video, the uh, art, uh, interview with uh, Gibson that the, um, the Whitney offers, um, he makes a point that uh, resonated with me, which is that... Um, as an artist who, rep who, who identifies as a tribal artist, he doesn't um, allow his aesthetics to bend in the direction of the art world. He, uh, he does what makes sense to him within uh, a, a tribal context. And the making, therefore, of works of, um, uh, of, 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 of very decorative works and uh, uh, craft uh, heavy works um, make sense to, to, to his aesthetic. Um, um, in a way, we're sort of going back at the curators for having given us what there seems to be some consensus is a, is a somewhat milquetoast um, biennial. But, but the individual artists are really just doing their thing and um, uh, often doing it Remarkably well. I mean, I think with with Gibson, the the actual um, the the uh, uh, powwow costumes hanging um, upstairs are maybe actually more uh, resonating. Um, um, and I, I love the pun of people like us, people like us. Um, uh, then then maybe the flag. Sorry, I've asked you a question, which is actually a speech on my. Of my <laughs> um, but um, the, the, question, the question is, um, where, do, do we just push it all back on the curators? Um, uh, were these, uh, were these is, is, is there some 
what what do you think do you, do you find it to be a milk toast show and where do you think the problem lies maybe it's a radical thing to say but i didn't find it to be a milk toast show and maybe that's because i think poetic material work that maybe has a certain kind of text or subtext really can be powerful and I think an attention to craft for me can be an entry point. Yes. So in the case of the Gibson works, I suppose the flag is decorative in a way, but he does frame it as a flag is something that claims. And I... Claims territory. And I'm really moved that in this transactional space that claim is being made. Maybe it's insufficient. Well, but, but, but there's also... I mean, there's the titling, and, and there's also the text in both pieces. I actually find Gibson to be one of the more frontal artists, and he's mm-hmm. in my short list of people who I... I like. I, I had much bigger problems with work that was almost baroquely sort of interact. And I'm I'm thinking, I'm going to look at my notes. Josh Klein's drowned light boxes with like oh, those dyed pictures of terrible. You know, I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, how <laughs> how many backflips do you have to do to get a content? Right. And there's this new thing, and and uh, this is the problem when you read somebody else's reviews every now and again. Roberta Smith apparently, or this is Jerry quoting Roberta. Oh. Um, uh, about content being the new form, there's this something there, right? Though, though it it doesn't really quite fit this biennial either. You know, content being the new form would fit the '93 biennial far more. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 part where I think it, it it gets slippery is with pieces like Klein's the decision by the curators to include someone like Klein. Or someone like Carissa Rodriguez's film *The Maid*, that features sweeping views of Sherry Levine's copies of Constantine Brancusi's sculpture *Newborn* from 1915. I mean, like, just the nice film, though. Okay, but what is it bloody about? Oh, I mean, yeah, it's it's and, and it's, where does it fit, and what are its politics again? If this is something that, that it it all just. You're right. It's a good-looking film. And most of the work in this show actually, you know, it looks okay. There are pleasant studio visits to be had. But it doesn't, not only does it not cohere as a show, mm-hmm. but the work isn't up to the challenge of addressing either the aesthetics of her time, mm-hmm. the politics of her time, you know, or any real challenges of her time, most of the work is not, and the curatorial overall is not. And and just to touch on something that Karen was saying, um, uh, that there, one does feel like one's been cheated a bit. I mean, you know, at least as a viewer, I do, because the 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 artists don't seem fully convinced of their political positions or their aesthetic positions, you know. There's almost well, like the, the artists don't have a responsibility to be uh, to, to have a political position. They 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 they, they, only, they only have a responsibility. They do if they're foregrounding content. So if they, they do if they're foregrounding content. Uh, well, the content. 
Unless that's also part of the, if there's an ironical take on that, that's also fine. But couldn't you say but, that the Klein is foregrounding content? It's foregrounding climate change. It's foregrounding but the it's, fact that lower Manhattan is going to be underwater. But it's not if the content is muddy. And that's the problem. And the In terms of the is art not market? Muddy, it's drowned <laughs> in each one of the white boxes. You can't bloody see it. Like, well, I just, also have to say that I think that one of the problems I have is it is very pretty. It is very colorful. It is very, um, you know, has clever tricks like, you know, the looping, like a la Christian Markley of the audio um, tape or tricks like this, you know, room full of clocks that, you know, is so overproduced that with two Felix Gonzalez Torres's, you know, synced makes right. more of a statement. Right. And going back to the Jeff Gibson piece, um, I feel as though, yes, that's part of his working procedure to use these kind of authentic techniques. However, he also does very powerful um, performance pieces that have a lot to do with ritual. And I f- find it very ethnographic for these, you know, you know, pretty weavings to be hung in the gallery in that way. And I think that there could have been a selection of artworks by these artists that um, really came through more authentically and weren't as much as eye candy. The line from, but, but come on, uh, you can have eye candy with content and often that's a real, that, you know, it's a double barrel threat. Ben Davis had, a, had one very good line about, about the show and that, and that was that, that, that the show is a retreat from clarity and that, and that I think sounds right to me, you know. And whose line was that? Ben Davis. Ben Davis, yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, the clarity. But the, the clarity is the curator's job, and the, the artists who come along are, are there to produce their own work. They're solipsistically involved in the work they make. You yeah. go to the studio. By the way, uh, this whole thing about the studio visits, uh, 300 studio visits for two curators to conduct over two years is less than one every two weeks, if I'm doing my maths right. It's not that overwhelming a number of studio visits... <laughs> To, to garner 75 artists, is it? 75 into 300 is, is a rather high ratio to actually pick uh, from these studio visits. Um, uh, I think they should be careful with their statistics and their brags uh, occasionally. But, but notwithstanding, um, I, I find it's probably an inevitability of uh, interior decor that if you put two people on one side of the room and two people on the other, that they, that they will end up forming a little bit of an alliance um, on each side. <laughs> And um, I'm finding that uh, uh, Sophie articulates it more, um, more gung-ho than I have. And I've, but um, uh, um, that maybe actually um, less declarativeness on, on the part of artists is um, a subtler, uh, more progressive form of resistance in, in the culture we're in. Uh, and that uh, doing your own thing and generating enigmatic statements with some beauty of uh, execution and um, use of materials isn't ultimately such a bad thing. Um, what I, my, my problem with the biennial is a problem with a lot of contemporary art, especially as, as it's presented in museums anyway, which is that um, whether you find the, fit, the object engaging or not, you're only going to get its value by reading the label. And this is a very narrative-heavy exhibition. 
in which basically, although there are uh, several floors of things to look at, um, and one can just look at it, uh, to get any narrative structure, to get any sense of leaving the building saying, okay, that exhibition was saying X or means Y. Uh, one accumulates that experience from reading the labels. Um, you, you'd, you'd almost have been better to read the labels and not look at the work than to look at the work and not read the labels from the point of view of getting the story. And that's, to me, very sad and very disappointing. Well, one exception, I agree with you, and I that is a criticism, that I felt it was didactic label-driven, and you needed those to really get into the content of a lot of the works in the exhibition. However, from all the 300 studio visits, I think a success was El- Alexandra Bell's piece of the redacted text, <laughs> which is the opposite of um, what you just described, an idea of the um, rape case with the five... This um, is the jog- African-American youth when Central Park, the Central Park Five, and also now in our current context, the notion of fake news and Donald Trump's sort of collusion with that particular case and the idea of what is removed Mm -hmm. is what is important. And it really stood on its own without any um, narrative text. And I thought that was a wonderful piece. It's the only time Trump is mentioned in the entire show. Though he ghosts the show in every obvious way. What? I was going to say, I don't know if that's quite true. The, there's a piece right next to it, the tape piece, that's all about the fear of the Trump presidency. Do they actually name it? Do they, name it? they probably do. I didn't sit through the whole thing. You might be right. Yeah. Well, they say fascism, right. homophobia, transphobia. I don't think they say Trump, but it's all... I think it's Trump in a thousand words. That's I, what I, just I think said. of it as the Trump that's corner. That's what I just said. Yes, he's, that the uh, entire... question's point is that, in fact, that uh, his Trump name is the isn't said. absent presence in every other work, mm. but he's a presence in this uh, actual, there is his signature, uh, bring back the death penalty for children, <laughs> um, for, for, for minors. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, by coincidence, I just <laughs> saw a rather anodyne uh, dramatization on Netflix um, uh, of. Uh, uh, the Central Park case, uh, which then sent me to the uh, superb uh, uh, Ken Burns documentary on the subject. Mm-hmm. A great uh, kind of, but but yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's a they're visually arresting. Uh, it's a visually arresting piece, although redaction. Um, it's it's a well worn visual um, trope. Let's look nowhere at the others. Yes, um, uh, that, that sort of blacking out and um, uh, uh, marker highlighting of, of text. It's, um, yeah, it's, 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 um, it's not really redaction in the uh, Jenny Holzer sense. It's more, um, it's more just um, highlighting, really. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, we need, we need to be told about this. But... Um, um, I think maybe Ken Burns tells us more. Well, but let, let's let's think about the other artists who you maybe don't necessarily need to go to the wall label for, right? Yeah. Um, again, you know, I think. Oh no! Well, no let me let me just clarify one thing. Yeah. I'm not saying that for the artist's sake you have to read the wall label. I'm saying for the sense the of a say- narrative arc of the entire exhibition one needs to look at the label. No, no, I get that. Yes. But, but I, I think the other thing you're saying is that it's it would be preferable to be able to just look at the work, correct? Yes. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's preferable for everyone. Yes. You know, on that side of this little table in the yes. water glasses. And we can reach across of, the aisle. Precisely, so. we can. We can reach across that. the aisle. Republican and Democrats. Um, but but what, what, what I would say is that, is that not only is the content declaratively or simply put, rather directly put, <laughs> right, in short supply, the aesthetics, mm-hmm. well-resolved, directly put, are also in short supply. Mm-hmm. So that, again, going with your logic of the wall labels, running through the show or walking through the show, as the case may be, you, you're not going to find a lot of rewards either. Right? Right. There are a few people, and I agree that Alexander Bell is one of them, it's fairly self-evident work, and it's deep work, it's profound work, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, it hits you pretty hard. Um, but but you know there there are other there are other work. I I like Keenan Monahan's uh, sort of vaguely Peter Saulish like paintings, and they have no politics whatsoever to them. Um, uh, Daniel Lim Ramos's uh, sculptures are terrific, right? Though they have plenty. But, of but clever, a clever curator would take work that has no overt politics in it and place it in such a work in such a position that it takes on a politics. Don't you think? That's, That's what, what I possibly, was trying to possibly, say about yes, the... Yes, do you feel but that maybe... Let, the, but let the, me just mention one other person yes. who I actually missed the first time around when I went to see the show. Yeah. And then I went to see it again on Sunday. And I hope you guys have his, have his pictures. We have it all. Uh, fantastic. Uh, uh, and that's Kern Hattelberg. Oh, yes. From Baltimore. Man. The, the photographs, they're on the third floor, right? Floor, you almost yes. missed him. He's fantastic. He's fabulous. I disagree. You don't like him? No, but I thought it was very, <laughs> like, a type of, you know, neo-social documentary travel it's, photography. It, yes. And it felt, it seemed slightly, you know, exploitive of the subjects. That they were yes. all lower, lower class, sort of rural, and it seemed very... It's really important. It seemed like it? a what type of National Geographic, you know, on the road travel. Wait a minute, what if he's lower class and... Well, we don't know that backstory, but it don't. Did. He's from Baltimore, though. He still lives there. Uh, <laughs> that, that's some nice parts of Baltimore, uh, Christian. I'm going with this. I don't think he's there for the crabs. Is where he's okay, going. no, but um, whether whether he's um, um, what's the name of the famous woman who got into trouble? She came out of her limousine and took a snap of the famous uh, widow, and then got back in the limousine, and the widow then told all um, famous famous photographer. Uh, defining image of the Depression era. Oh, yes. Uh, you know who I mean, uh, female. Yeah. Sorry? Dorothea Lang. Dorothea, Dorothea Lang. Langer. Dorothea yes. Lang. Oh. Yes. Uh, they seem like... Um, Plumbing it. They seem like Dorothea Lang in color uh, to me. Well, yes, but Dorothea Lang also had a social project whereby she wanted to bring attention to, you know, a certain region that was suffering. And, Don't you, think you know, this seemed well? as though it was no. like a travelogue and it he's, didn't really uh, seem to have apparently necessary. Apparently he's been doing this for five, six, seven years since he got out of Yale and he's been traveling back and forth oh, with okay. very little money. Uh, um, you know, and holding up in places and like yeah. Let's 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 yeah. just grant the guy his 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 earnest intentions. I mean, I think that yeah, but um, I mean, I don't think they compare to La Ruby Toya, for instance. In, I don't either, no. and that's somebody who should be in this biennial. Exactly, I agree. You know, right? Yes. Like, I mean, like this. Mm. This is I. I came up with like a, a quick, like quick and dirty list. She was in the last one though. Fifteen. Was she really? Yeah. yeah. Oh god damn it! That's that's <laughs> that point gone. 
You, you, they um, use them up too quickly. That's they, they, they should, they should, they should, they should be a bit more sparing. Well, no, but I do not. have to say, in defense of the curators, that the essays in the catalog are on point and are addressing, you know, our current political right. social context. Case the labels didn't give you enough. And they're to read. sort of you taking can... up the slack for the artworks that don't express these, um, you know, notions and concerns and and focus. However, I also thought that there should have been another voice, not just an institutional voice in the catalog and there wasn't a uh, um, social critic or um, mm. you know an art historian mm. or you know a political critic anybody another voice that um, was in the book itself and I also feel like going back to the Candor's piece that is this idea of institutional critique dead like Hans Hacke's pieces in the early 70s which really resonated and actually sort of changed the whole landscape it seems like a type of co-option whereby the institution gets to have its cake and eat it too exactly there's a great there's a beautiful line in fact that forensic architecture puts in that movie they say uh, Candor is the deputy uh, chair of the board of trustees of the institution that commissioned this film and, and that sort of line sort of says it all, doesn't it? I mean, it, um, it, that loop in which, in which the filmmakers and the institution are like that Euroboros chasing its own tail. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, everyone, gets, everyone gets off. I mean, everyone, yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, it yeah. seems that way, but I think the institution does have an obligation such as like the Met now longer, no longer is going to be taking money from Sackler, mm-hmm. you know, and we do, of course, we need patronage. Artists need patronage. Institutions need patronage. Um, you know, critics need patronage. Everybody needs patronage <laughs> in order to survive. But I think the institution has to vet those patrons and art washing is not acceptable. At well, what, what point, by the way, does Mr. Kanda um, want to walk away. I mean, you'd, uh, it's, it's a strange vanity to, to oh, stick around. Will the museum let him stay? I mean, that's really mm. what's spectacular. Um, um, to commission this film, but also let the guy stay is... is, is a, I, I, I agree. It's but I a, also think a point that Haka um, examined in the um, study of this type of um, he, he was corporate... Looking at property owners who are... Uh, yes, but the idea also mind. of this idea that you know, these patrons, it, it's not noblesse oblige, but it's also a form of marketing. It's also a form of, um, you know, social advancement. It's also, you know, the, all of these um, intricacies were exposed by the work of Hakka in his writings and also in his artwork. And it seems as though at this point, it's sort of, uh, the works are defanged by the institution commissioning this type of so-called critique. Yes, but isn't it, Sophie... That, that almost every um, work that goes for the jugular and that's, that's, that's meeting with either approval or critique um, uh, is, is using a technique or a strategy that's well established within the canon. And I wonder, um, it's a kind of a bit of a catch-22 where, where there there's, seems to be some feeling, uh, certainly with Christian and Karen, that... Um, um, a work that's not overtly um, uh, political is um, muddying its its politics and lacking in clarity. But the work, on the other hand, that is is f- um, um, so comfortably settled into um, uh, 
uh, a way of doing business, uh, Hans Hacker in relation to uh, forensic architecture's work, or uh, Jenny Holzer in relation to um, uh, the uh, Alexandra Bell's work, and so on and so forth. Um, um, you know, the damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. Um, um, you're obviously putting your money on the, uh, the subtlety and the quiet subversion um, ticket, and I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. Um, but what, what do you, th- what, what do you how, how, how do you feel about the, the charge of um, um, uh, uh, familiar patterns of, of uh, strategy? Well, firstly, to respond to the Hakka piece, I think what's interesting and different about it is that it's responsive. And it calls for audience participation. If you're talking about MoMA poll, where, where visitors were invited to vote whether or not the fact that the Rockefellers were supporting the Vietnam War would impact their re-election and they were on the board of trustees. And there were no pieces in this biennial that called for that level of responsiveness. So that's, that's a first, I guess, that's my first mm-hmm. angle against it. That being said, I have two other things. Firstly, I went on one evening a free evening, a free Friday evening, and one of Nicole Eisenman's studio assistants was there handing out stickers of tear gas canisters. And that was, I have one with me. And that was one of the... Exhibit A. Subversive, unexpected moments that was sort of in and outside of the museum... It says part of Nicole's piece, or it says copyright 2019. Mark Newgarden and Patrick Piggott in collaboration with Nicole Eisenman. So okay, it was in part, and it says support the arts with R.I.P. Military scent maximum choke, and then there's a man choking with a sign that says amnesty. And more tears than an ex-vice chair. Well, weak yeah, okay. Tea. <laughs> Did you say weak tea? Weak tea. Yes. Weak tea. Mm. Yeah, it does. It's it's um um you know lesson lesson one on how to be an avant-garde artist is to bite <laughs> the hand that feeds, and. Um, Got a lot of biting going on in this, huh? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I agree, Christian. Yeah, you're a lot teeth. of hand kissing. A lot of, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, once you're Nicole Eisenman, you're sort of in, uh, as far as, and, and, and how much is, the, I, I don't think, I wonder how much sleep Adam Weinberg is, is, is losing over all this. I mean, it's, um, the institution sort of carries it and copes. Um, uh, it, it's everyone sort of buoyed along by the expectation of of this degree of subversion, and it's um, uh, it's not going to cost anyone anything other than the printing costs to to put out that sort of witty thing in a way. It, it just That's it, fair. It, it, it's um, I, I'm uh, I'm sorry to sound cynical, but it's it's it's, it's, it's a little easy. It's a far cry from Michael Rakowitz who decided not to do the show, for example. Right. Mm. Um, 
And it's a far cry from, you know, the wage and the decolonize this place. Well, artists, most of them, uh, protesters who've come out in front of the museum uh, a number of times and who have actually said that they, they give the museum, they give Adam Weinberg a Warren B. Cantor until September to sort their house out, meaning Cantor out, or they'll shut down the museum. Huh. That's the threat. From people who can shut it down? Well, I don't know. We'll see whether they can or they can't. But I think at the right. last demonstration, what I read was their declarations were, we could have shut down the museum today. Mm. We decided not to. We've sent a letter, an official letter, to both Kander and Weinberg and the trustees of the museum and told mm. them that if they do not jettison Kander by September, we will shut the museum down. Well, that's a threat. That's a threat. Um, on the sort of weak tea aspect, I'm thinking back just historically to the 1980s, early 90s, uh, the wake of the AIDS crisis. And, you know, there, there was just this political, social, um, you know, uprising by um, gay men in order to address the AIDS crisis. And also artists really jumped on board. We had like group material. We had Grand Fury. We had David Wanarovich. We had a host of artists. We had Douglas Crimp, the critic, who stopped writing about anything, not art, but about the AIDS crisis and how to address the AIDS crisis. There were demonstrations. It just strikes me. I'm just sort of astonished that in this political and social context, when we have massacres, when we have like Charlottesville, when we have, you know, Kids, all of this... children in jail cells and the, the fucking southern border, for crying out loud. The immigration mm. issues, yeah. I mean, climate control denial, and, like, we're getting this kind of really... I think Weak Tease does say it to me that, um, you know, and also the curators aren't necessarily challenging the artists, you know, uh, to find these works that are reflecting our time. And in defense of curators, I just like to um, give a shout out to two recent shows that I, three recent shows that I saw, um, the show on um, the unheroic act. I have an uh, interview in Art Critical, uh, you know, in relationship to Me Too and the question of rape, and, the, and, and then also an exhibition now on um, the misuse of medical science at John Jay under fascism and racism. And these are like, these works are strong, and they're to the point. And um, I think that they're out there and that you can find them, and I don't understand why but the surely, curators the, are tiptoeing around. Okay, but I, I feel that if the curators had been proactive and commissioned work to deal with specific issues that the curators themselves said, this panel will be unanimous in beating the curators up for such intrusive, didactic, and prescriptive um, curatorial Well, strategy. that's what the Candor's piece is. That's what the Candor's piece that's, is. That, I'm, I'm, that I'm, piece uniquely is. But, but Sophie, wouldn't we all be, I'm, I, I know that you would, and I think I would be pretty, pretty miffed if uh, the curator said, we wanted somebody to address the issue of climate change denial, and so we have commissioned so and so to do this. That would be that would be the worst kind of curating, wouldn't it? I think so, and I think what what excites me about that piece is that it did produce a data set of these Safari Land tear gas canisters that would not necessarily have been have had that financial backing, and in that way, I think. You could argue that it 
is an act of social justice beyond or art washing. I mean, or, I mean it's a double bind. You could see it either way. Because what does it mean to have institutional critique within an institution? It's always when a little it's bit commissioned by an institution who's trying to basically cover the rest. Yes, absolutely. Well, but it's bound to be messy. Doesn't, listen, you don't have to have the curators essentially commissioning people to address commissioning artists to address these specific issues. The artists should be addressing these issues on their own, whether subtly mm -hmm. through aesthetics. You know, mm -hmm. hell, look, Robert Motherwell did three hundred paintings putatively about the Spanish Civil War, yes. all with the same bloody title, right? Um, and there were beautiful abstractions, many of them, yes. most of them, yes. right? Um, and they were very subtle, mm. um, uh, and they had plenty of content, right? Um, and they were, but, long, but, they were made a long time after the Spanish Civil War. Yes, they were, fine. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, but, but where I'm going they is... could have made them about the Vietnam War. They may, may been what about Guernica? Yes. Yeah, what about Guernica? Well, in any event, we're not... We're not that that wasn't the point of my my oh sorry yes my that wasn't the point I wanted to make the point I wanted to make is that all the activism is happening outside, mm. and none of it's happening inside the museum, and that's a problem. Okay, but another solution to that is not necessarily having the curators commission all of the works, but you could have at least a thematic context in which you would necessarily have to address certain topics, certain subject matters within the framework. And I think they went in the opposite direction in making this such an enormously canvassing large survey that there's no way that you could get to that type of concentrated focused content. And I'm a little going back more then, cynical. I'm actually thinking that what they did was they avoided hot button topics and did the demographics right. All uh, right, so you can blame, yeah. uh, yes. Well, I mean, no. so, so, really so one room that- It is one, cynical, and I think that's more or less what, I, I think that's more or less the results. Well, let's, let, you know, I'd, like, I'd like the panel to focus well, on one room. Well, I think that's self-defeating uh, Karen, if I may, I'd like the panel to focus on one room where the demographics is perfect. You have uh, two African-Americans, one male, one female. Um, so the artists, uh, one of them, uh, Eric T. Mack, was discussed on the last review panel by coincidence. Um, and the other, uh, Jennifer Packer, is to my, uh, was, I would just say, um, one of the best shows in a commercial gallery I saw in uh, 2018 was Jennifer Packer's uh, recent show at Sycamore Jenkins. So you've got these, these artists juxtaposed in a slightly kind of, uh, sadly, sort of corridor-like. I mean, it wasn't it? Was it's an equal size to any other gallery, but because of its location, it was a somewhat um, uh, transitory. Uh, and maybe, maybe the flapping works of Eric Mack reinforced that. Um, but, but here, um, the curators are doing exactly what uh, Christian is charging: is, is, is that they're, they're finding um, is that the artists by producing work uh, which, so in the case of, Pac, uh, in the case of Packer, um, uh, portraits of her circle. Um, if we look at the, the uh, lesson in longing, it's a rather large, it's a 12 foot wide, um, unframed uh, uh, canvas there. Um, uh, sort of Matissean in its um, um, kind of disposition of forms and its unity of color. But, um, well, um, is it enough just to be 
an African-American woman making really beautiful paintings of family and friends, and then that in itself, as it were, makes visible the overlooked and is inherently political without having um, a quote-unquote message uh, or com- and comparably um, presented as her compliment Mac with his, his interests in, in craft and, and in... Um, uh, uh, in in um, uh, uh, black culture, is that is that does that do the trick? Does that settle? Is that uh, does that resonate with us, uh, or is that is that an example of what we're, we're describing as uh, the curators sort of passing it on, as it were? So are you suggesting that the thematic is inclusiveness in a, sort of a, as a subtext? Yeah. Well, it, it does does that does it work? Um, it, it, does it, is it good enough? Is it is it is it um, does it fold into a kind of meaning for the show? Look, I I like Packard's paintings. I, I think you know they they clearly belong in a big show. I'm not quite sure if they belong in this one. Um, Mac is somebody who I'm personally kind of interested in, but when I think about Mac, I think about a guy named Basil Kincaid who's mm. doing far more interesting work, um, who also happens to be African-American from Chicago and who, you know, who didn't have a show at the Brooklyn Museum. Um, some of the stuff, you know, is stuff that is a little bit more, and he's, do, and he's doing quilted work with dollar bills, <laughs> mm. among other things, you know. Um, I mean, you know, maybe maybe you're on to something in 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 saying that, you know, there's 300 studio visits really aren't that big a deal. Mm. You know, maybe they maybe the curators just didn't work hard enough. Well, I, I also mean, think just the numbers of studio visits is sort of, you know, if you're just passing through all of these studios and you're getting only 75 artists, I mean, wouldn't it be, you know, more productive to, do, you know, to streamline? I think the whole methodology of how these exhibitions are executed needs there to be a mystery, right? needs to be no needs to be examined because, you know, you can't go to all these far flung locales. I mean, maybe there needs to be like local committees. Maybe there has to be some kind of submission process. There has to be. I think it's it's just a wasteful. Um, exercise to just be like globe trotting to find all these artists that are not like um, in any type of organizing principle and just sort of feeding the beast of the excitement of the uh, tradition of the biennial which had a lot of resonance when you know it was addressing a small community everyone knew each other everybody had seen each other's work everyone was starting a conversation um, in their working process over the past two years. But now the curators are saying, we're putting the artists in conversation. I'd rather have the artists start their own conversation mm-hmm. and showcase that. I, to, to my mind, um, uh, Jennifer Packer, maybe putting her with Mac was a little bit, um, in a way, patronizing. I mean, visually, it was not... I mean, conceptually, it was an interesting pairing. Visually, it did nothing, really. And, and I think that uh, Packer's peers are people like Doron Langberg and Louis uh, Frattino, uh, also making visible uh, through a kind of neo-symbolist, um, a very personal um, painterly language, 
um, making visible uh, expressions of, of, of affection um, for, for one's lovers, one's peers. Um, and that it, it, it's curious that actually the, the biennial was not paint unfriendly in that there were a decent-ish number of painters and traditional-ish sculptors um, present in the show. And yet, um, and yet because, the, because there wasn't this sort of binding sense of purpose uh, in, in, in the show, um, one wonders whether painting was able to stand up how did painting fare in the biennial, uh, Sophie? I really loved um, Marlon Marcus's work. Is that his name? Um, he is based in Richmond, California, and does reconstructs covers of Art in America, Art Forum. Oh, oh. gosh, really? You didn't, you like, you didn't like them? Uh, well, I'm well, afraid I'm I've seen 17 tonight. artists in my short career who do exactly the same thing. Paint, but art, But I just can't, I couldn't understand the myopia of, <laughs> like, self-address of these paintings of art magazine covers that only a small percentage of the population. I just... I, I just thought that was absolutely, the choice was mm. astonishing. I'm afraid I'm in agreement. Okay, well, if we let's have a revert, if we, mm. I'll defend in a moment, but if we revert back to Jennifer Packer too, we weren't looking at her smallest work, which I was most moved by of the police officer. We weren't looking at what, sorry? There there were her sort oh, of yes. monolithic oh, yes, yes, works, yes, that, that, right. but I was. Are we in agreement now? Maybe yeah. with that with that painting, yes, I like. Okay, that good. The tenderness painting, the very small, yes. the very powerful painting about yes. yay big. Yes, that's a very it's called tenderness, if I remember correctly. It's as well, something to do with tenderness, which it's, is it's an exercise in tenderness. In tenderness right, yes, right, right, right. it's on the cover of her Chicago um, right. exhibition catalog. She's yes. an amazing painter. Uh, she's 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 my favorite, one of my favorites. Of 2017, 18. Um, <laughs> stick around; I'll qualify it a bit further. Um, but no, she's 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 wonderful. But um, um, Noah, if you go back to the artist we were just looking at, um, there, there was another artist there, uh, Jeanette um, uh, Munt. Munt. Yes, who's who's making paintings about uh, Simone Bile, uh, sort of. Um, yeah, I, I just wondered, in a kind of faux-futurist, kind of uh, staggered uh, technique, and um, uh, yes, there she is, Jennifer Munt, uh, born athlete. Amer- oh, it's Ali Raisman, not... Uh, there's the others of Simone, aren't there? But um, uh, yeah, that, that made me think, again, just to, to follow Christian's pattern of, oh, yes, but so-and-so does it better that um, I think uh, Clintel Steed making a whole set of paintings about the Olympics, probably around the same time, um, much, much more powerful, much more interesting work. A lot of formal sort of advance in any of these propositions. And that, that for me, is a significant problem. It's almost like most of the company mm. in the show got a, a severe case of amnesia, but a year a year before the show was to mm. essentially take place, 
or like they forgot that they could actually dial things up in Google, frankly, because, mm. you know, I, I think in most cases, you know, you can find, you know, again, not to pick on Marlon Mullen, but, but uh, yeah, examples of this kind of thing being done a million times before. Um, and then, you know, back to politics to a certain degree, because mm. a lot of the work clearly has, there's a default position Identity really becomes a default position, and that actually sort of struck me throughout the show, whether we're, we're, we're talking about identity as a source for political content or identity as a source for, for straight-up aesthetics. We've or, discharged our responsibility as curators for it to have a political uh, vision by uh, achieving this uh, ethical demographic. Right, but, but I'm going to something slightly larger, and that is that, that I think accidentally, what this show winds up doing is almost a perfect re re reflection of what's going on mm. nationally, possibly globally. Mm. And that is that in culture, when things get muddied, yes. people go to what they know. Right. And the last mm. time we had this happen to us, the 30s. where mm. everything got massively screwy, mm. you know, we went back to we went to identity politics, mm -hmm. um, and I do think that there is a significant amount of that. There's a there's a I think there's siloing in this show. Uh -huh. um, that again it is a is is not a is is not a is not there necessarily by design, mm. you know. Mm. Um, uh, okay, so I asked the question about painting in this biennial. Let me now ask the question then about um, performance and uh, and film. Um, some film, some filmic or um, some moving image work, quite a bit is is represented in the main galleries. But then you have this uh, concurrent program, which is largely ticketed. Um, and it's like a sort of a film festival in parallel with the Whitney Biennial. It's, it's, it's a bit like, um, you know, a Venice Biennale for architecture or film. Okay, so what? It's happening, but I'm not there sort of thing. Um, I, I guess, uh, uh, well, let me ask my panelists, have you been as delinquent as I have been in seeing films that are part of the official program of the Biennial? I think it's a very curatorially immature position to put people, mm. more than one artist, in a single black box. Yes, I think it, it's an utter disservice to. Isn't it just to uh, to you know each one of those pieces? If, um, if a piece can't be reified as a physical yeah. entity with a room, it's not art, is it? In a funny way, you know? it isn't. You know, it's mm. just uh, if it's just programmed. It's programming exactly. Uh, but um, Sophie, I know that you were. Um, uh, we all, I think all, I, don't, I can't speak for Christian, but we three did manage to catch um, Brendan Fernandez's performance um, around his installation. Um, he's a person who himself comes out of classical ballet. Uh, he makes these sculptures that can stand on their own, or, or are supposed to be able to stand on their own sculpturally, uh, a scaffolding and these intriguing structures. But they then come to life when uh, five dancers are enlisted to uh, perform. I'm not sure whether perform is the right word. I, I certainly enjoyed seeing it, but seeing five beautiful people in spandex usually is enjoyable for me. Um, uh, but it wasn't actually choreographed as such. It was really more um, ballet dancers exercising, uh, which, was, which was an interesting thing. And then the, 
this, the text that one reads from either the curators or the artist himself uh, hints at a sub- certain sense of subver- subversiveness with um, authority and control and um, what have you. But then I think, yeah, come on, that's just a superstructure in a way. Um, what level does one enjoy it? We, uh, those of who, who, Sophie, you, you saw the performance. Uh, did you enjoy it, and how did you enjoy it? And did you enjoy it the way you think the artist would have wanted you to enjoy it? What I enjoyed about it was that the procession was them all snapping. All oh, the dancers yes. were snapping. And... No. No. <laughs> I, uh, it's a good place to start. I think it's a good place to start because it got people's attention... And I like it when dancers have voices, and I like it when dancers make noise, especially when ballet dancers make noise, because I, I think so much about ballet is about verticality and quiet, and a lot of that is broken down when the immediate interaction as a viewer that I had was, oh, someone's getting my attention, and they're warming up. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah that's, my, that's my initial response. And, and I was also gratified to see that these sort of very cold structures became more interesting to me, including the ropes, when they were being used to pull and stretch. Yeah, the body because left to its own devices, it looks like a the room looks like a very well behaved Barry Levay or um, or maybe uh, uh, some of the setup for a, a Matthew Barney or a Carolee Schneeman um, performance. Um, but then it 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 comes to life in a very different way during performance, and that's um, um, that's a strange a strange fact of a certain kind of installation, isn't it? Yes. Did, uh, Karen, did you... No, I, I saw the scaffolding um, and the architecture of the piece. I haven't seen the performance, but I'm all for activating spaces with performance, and it seems as though the work owes a legacy to... Um, to someone. Yeah, that I'm totally blanking on That's Yvonne Rayner. Yvonne Rayner, yes. yes. The yes. enormous um, legacy to yes. Yvonne Rayner's um, groundbreaking work. And um, I haven't seen the performance, but I always think it's a good thing to activate the gallery space. Mm. Um, But just getting back to your point, David, about um, inclusiveness, um, I find it slightly patronizing to say that, you know, inclusiveness brings in a um, an element that's structural to an exhibition, because I think that's the starting point. And then the work has to live up to um, another either organizing principle or selection process. And, you know, that's not good enough. That's what the baseline is. Mm-hmm. And I n- it never should be a substitute for um, the selections of the work. Right, right. But it does seem to be um, packaged by the curators um, in their self-congratulation as um, some kind of structural element in their argument. Well, I'd find that problematic if that is the case intentionally. That has been the case, which is why, without wanting to sound as cynical as I did, I... How do you know that? Because they've said so. Because every every interview that I read, they're basically trotting out the numbers. 
for the show um, rather than talking about any thematics. Yeah. Um, that, that's the thematics. Almost politically yeah. blackmails you and, to to be reticent with criticism right. of a show that is. Well, as that's certainly one way to look at it. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, uh, one of the things I was going to say about Fernandez's piece is that, in in the same way that I I I wish creators knew better than to crowd lots of people into a black box, lots of works into a black box, works that are five minutes long, three minutes long, 30 minutes long. Mm. It's just that it's the wrong approach. I, I, I do wish, and you guys may not agree with me, that that environments like these um, almost, well, you can't say I'll be required to, but, but thought about the viewer um, and the audience when the space is not activated by, by a performance. Um, I don't think a visual, it, it, I don't think a video registry would be a bad thing, just so right. that people can see what went on. Well, in that's there. a good idea. Mm -hmm. you know, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's not a lot to ask. You know, so you walk Makes in sense. from Boise or from LA or from <laughs> Brooklyn. Yes. You know, and and you're not and you're not there on opening night. And you're not there on the scheduled Saturday or Sunday. Mm. And you know, you, you really want to know what? I mean, they devoted an entire proper, you know, mm. a, a, a mm. nice room to this. Mm. You yes. should know what happened. Mm. Mm. Yes. Right? Yeah. Agreed. So I I think we'll, or or in fact, just a better exploitation of the website would would be a, a place that to too. go with that. that too. Well, let's I, call I, the Whitney and let them know. Yes. <laughs> Okay, um, we've had a very patient audience who were not given the half time in which to uh, uh, vent, uh, uh, share their views, uh, probe, ask questions. Uh, the panel, panelists, I will bring us back for a, a, a quick um, uh, last word each um, on the show. But um, uh, audience members, um, anything you'd like to share with us? Uh, we're open to comments. We're open to uh, please talk about so-and-so. That's perfectly fine as well. Um, um, so the, the themes generally that we've been covering so far this evening, um, the, the, the question of inclusiveness and whether that can ever be allowed to stand in as a, uh, a thing in itself or whether we should be past that by now. Um, we've been thinking also about the subtle, perhaps too subtle, um, political assumptions of, of this year's exhibition in view of the um, extremely heightened uh, political tension that, that people feel in the culture at large um, and have come to expect to see in um, engaged art and, and curatorial adventures. There is a hand already in the front row um, uh, we can, uh, from Lady here, and we can... Yes. Thank you. Hi. Um, I was wondering, because the uh, curators didn't make the show that um, explicitly or maybe even implicitly political, if you thought that um, the Whitney itself had something to say or either implicitly or explicitly about the politics of the show and that influenced the curators or they thought that they needed not to be too political for, you know, because what, what you know, whatever. Hmm. Call me cynical, but... Um, I, I have the sense that even without there, without a memo necessarily going out, that the institutional pressures have been such that both of those curators knew that there might be some 
issues at hand minimally, if not actual limitations on what they could and couldn't do. You know, um, uh, I don't know that that needs to be made explicit, you know, in an email or, or, or a memo. Um, I don't know. I, I, I was on a panel with Elizabeth Sussman at the Armory, um, as it were, as all the details were being finalized for the opening of the show. Um, and we wanted Rujeko Hockley on, who's one of the curators, and um, nothing doing, which is not proof of anything, right? But, but Elizabeth Sussman was also very quiet about the political implications of this show versus hers. There didn't seem to be a lot of sort of like freedom to discuss, you know. Which is um, ironic because the, well, the Whitney is such a kind of... Um, it puts her forward as, as the almost the activist museum, doesn't it, with uh, exhibitions uh, celebrating the history of activism, um, uh, open forums on, uh, on, on some issue. I can't remember what the issue was now, I'm afraid, which is a bit of an indictment of my political consciousness. But I remember there was, there was a whole day of protest about something, maybe Trump or maybe the election, I can't remember, about two years ago. Do you remember that term? Well, what I would say um, to answer your question is that the selection of the two young curators themselves, you know, who might not have as much experience, voice, center, would push back um, already by the director, I think, um, you know, is an indication that a more seasoned figure like a Sussman, you know, wouldn't be as, you know, malleable, if you will. So in, in choosing the two young and less experienced um, curators to take on this, um, this biennial, I think right there, um, you know, you see the choice of the director. But actually the, the curators of 2017 were young and were not, uh, only one of them was affiliated to the Whitney, the other one was a freelancer. Um, and they seem to be pretty uh, gung-ho, pretty unimpeded. Right, and that was, that was also pr- um, pre-Trump era. No, 2017. On the cusp. No, no, it was on the... Biennial. It, it was, yeah, it, it was, was 2017. The, um, he came into office in 2017. Yes, but yes. No, I, that actually, no, that went up. Was Trump around? Yes, yes. Yeah, but the yeah, research wasn't... I mean, yeah, yeah, was the, the show was designed as a, as a you know... Hillary Clinton triumph, actually. Yeah, it was before. Um, The research was done prior. It was more projective at that point. I feel like this one was more, we expected a response. Yes. Well well put. Good good number of hands going up. I'll leave it to you, sir, to to choose who speaks. I I zipped through it kind of quickly, but um, one of the first things I thought of when I got off the elevator at the Whitney was, it felt like, a lot of student work, good student work, but student work, especially the painting. And I thought the installation was kind of, uh, I don't know if antiseptic or safe for the right terms, but I, I don't know, that, that sort of stuck with me before I had a chance to do the required reading, you know? And I just wanted to know what y'all might think about the installation just in general as you walk through uh, the building, or walk through the sixth and the fifth and the, the other floors. Third floor, there was yes. There yes. first. Yes, well, let's, let's hear comments and, criti- and, and questions, and then we'll absorb them, panel, uh, at the end. Yes, yes. I, I, I thought that there, 
a lot of the work looked like student work. And um, I definitely had some grad student yeah. moments. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but the thing is that there are they they they. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm going to keep this till the end. Yes, let's have some. Yeah, thank you. So I have a, a few things which are more just statements maybe to talk about. Um, yeah. I think as regards to um, the suggestion of painting, uh, Marlon Mullen's work, I thought was um, at first glance, I wanted to like it. Um, I'm familiar with the gallery that he shows with and I feel like I wanted to like it, but I felt like on the topic of labels, the gallery really failed. The Whitney Biennial failed in the labels being... Uh, either didactic or mind-numbingly like political. Um, it stated, of course, that um, Mullen has a level of autism, and I do feel like that was a reliance of the curators to sort of um, depend on that as like uh, something very superficial. Um, as an outsider, where the subject of these paintings are um, about a hierarchy of the art world that is elite and like absolutely um, intellectual. So, I mean, I don't know, you know, the level of autism this person has, but I think. I think it's a complicated subject that I think was a crutch for the curators to sort of put in. Um, and I thought that was a stand-in for identity politics. Um, I also felt like perhaps the deletion of Trump, the word Trump from this might have been on a positive note, a good thing, because I do feel like our attention expands and perhaps it was really great that I didn't see a lot of Trump art. Um, but you know, on the other hand, of course, there could have been way more political work on almost every level. Um, but I do wonder about the overarching principle of the duty of this biennial to access such a really insanely hard global issue. And, and, and the world is not cohesive. And I do wonder if perhaps the Whitney Biennial could have been cohesive in its political like attempt. So that's not a question, but it's more like the observation. Also, I just want to say, I wasn't in love with the conversation about Gibson's work regarding the decorative, pretty, or eye candy description. I do think those are sort of like marginalized ways of describing color and femininity. And I do think that work is far more complex and deserves perhaps better adjectives. Um, we could have talked about David Batchelor's book, Chromophobia and the Fear of Color. Um, so I, I think Gibson's work was beautiful. And I think to sort of put it in the category of eye candy is, is I'm maybe not um, intentionally up to no, no. scrutiny, but not it what I would have deserves scrutiny. Good, good point. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, um, I was wondering if you could discuss, uh, there was this one photographer, I can't quite remember her name, but she did these photographs, uh, these very brutal close-ups of babies being born. And in oh, yeah. the show that was, I also agree, kind of had this weird lack of political art going on. These were very, these stood out to me as these very brutal, political. Ah, yes, good job, Noah Dillon. Uh, Heiji Shin, yes. Yes, and... Um, One of several Korean-born artists in the show. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was curious, um, because she didn't pop up in the main conversation, what your thoughts were about her photography and its place in the show. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, in the front row, we've got a comment as well. Thanks. I'm just wondering about um, putting the whole issue of the political red line that they would or would not cross aside, um, the issue of kind of a lack of connoisseurship, and if this is a function of the moment we're in or the fact that these curators were so young, um, just wanted to hear more about that. A lack of connoisseurship, you feel? Give an instance of it, or, or what, what, what exactly do you mean by well, just, that? I just felt that so much of the work felt like graduate-level mm. work, that the curators didn't have a really um, uh, deep 
maybe experience in looking mm. closely mm. at work right. over a long period of time. And right, right. Well, I think um, um, let's 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 take it back to the panel now for for a, a quick five minute roundup, uh, a wrap up of this, and and um, uh, 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 several comments coming from the floor. Um, about uh, you know a student look, um, a lack of connoisseurship, um, uh, lack of focus. Um, um, why is why ha- where has this um, onus on novelty and youth um, come upon the, the, this institution? Because in its earlier days, the, the Whitney annuals and biennials um, were just taking the pulse of American art usually by walking up and down 57th Street. But, um, but nonetheless, um, you would habitually see grand old names in a biennial. And then as it got, um, you know, in its more recent uh, history um, in biennials, there would be new, new people introduced, certainly. But you'd always have um, some pretty solid names. I can remember... Um, we were reviewing a biennial back at um, the National Academy, Svetlana Alpers and um, uh, a couple of others. Robert Grosvenor was a big subject of discussion. So there's, there's a, like a canonical um, minimalist being brought back for a Whitney biennial. Um, um, in this year's, I mean, the, um, uh, you know, once Nicole Eisenman is standing out as... as um, uh, a voice, from, uh, an exemplar of uh, the establishment, you realize it's a very young um, vibe, and that would certainly account for a studenty look. It's not, it's not that they're still learning, it's just that these are some, some new people. Um, why sh- should, should, should the Whitney Biennial um, be as interested as it seems to have become in? Um, new people. No. No, and it wasn't the last time around or the last few times around, and it's mm. been quite smart in not bending to, again, what I call a default drive. I mean, the default drive is not only go to identity, but the default drive to go for the new is to go to, to, go to youth, right? Mm. To go to the young. And that's what the culture's been telling us now, f- advertising-wise, mm. for three decades. Right. Right. Um, There is nothing more conservative than youth culture. And that's true in, you know, in 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 marketing uh, and in, in, you know, in television and in movies as it is in in art. You know, I think curators get it right and they've got it right previously um, when they uh, don't engage in this kind of. Uh, reverse ageism, you know, uh-huh. and they look at older artists or our artists across generations mm. and try and figure out what the larger, um, mm. Mm. what the larger newness looks like. Right. Well, I right. think there could be a middle ground. I mean, I think the biennials were traditionally a certain group. You knew what that certain group was and who was going to get in, um, you know, 
every two years. And there were, again, it was insular, people who knew each other, who knew each other's work, who knew each other's shows. And I think it's great to branch out and to discover some new faces and new voices. I think the quality, the quality, the substance, the originality, uh, the historical understanding of the work uh, that preceded may be lacking in these very young, like very wet behind the ears type um, artists that I think um, are prevalent in this exhibition. And I also feel like the market demands the new next Basquiat or Oscar Marilla or, you know, it's like, I think that that's also part of it. Like, market wants it, yeah. you know, let's bring in these new um, young bright faces and like who's going to become the next star has something to do with those types of choices. And because also the curators are younger and less experienced and have less of the arc of knowledge of what preceded. All right. Sophie, you're young. Are you pleased to see so many young people? I was pleased to see so many young people. But I think something that struck me about it was that the curators seemed to be interested in relieving MFA debt. That was a very common, hey, that, that's a big deal. I think that was a, an exciting bent. But I do agree that, of course, novelty doesn't mean youth. Right. They shouldn't be equated. And there were only two deceased artists who were in the biennial, which is the lowest number historically. And I think they died during the course of preparation. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't, not a, they died You're after they were right. selected. They, you had nothing to do with it. No, I'm sure they <laughs> uh, Well, it's good to end with a laugh, but I wasn't trying to make a joke at the expense of those who didn't make it to the opening night. Um, I hope we all make it in one piece over the road to one Grand Army Plaza. Big thank you to Greg Richards for his recording and to Noah Dillon for his marvelous visual details. <laughs>